The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcome on in, guys, to another episode of The Squonk and the Hag. I don't know why it started getting weird every time I say the hag now. The hag. The, I mean, the... that's that's just us. It, it's just slowly going downhill. This is true. This is true. But mm -hmm. uh, before we get in to this week's Krako tale, uh, <laughs> did have someone reached out in a comment on Spotify, and I might have forgotten to mention it when we recorded the last episode, so I apologize. But uh, I, th I, th I think it said Bool or Booly. I'm so sorry that it's B U H L E. Um, thank you so much for posting. Uh, there was some incorrect information in our episode about the Menendez brothers. There were, there was, I guess, conjecture about them kneecapping their parents and making it look like a mob hit, which has been disproven since those rumors came out and I did not catch that so thank you so much for reaching out it always means the world to us to hear from you guys and I am incredibly sorry for completely and utterly butchering your name yeah names even even though English is you know our native language we still struggle to speak it so I mean names sometimes don't come out right names Normal words, small words, big words, you know. Speech in general just doesn't come out right. Yeah, words, which is why it's it was such a great decision for the two of us. The, the, the people who are incapable of speech properly were like, yeah, let's do a thing where we need to talk. Yeah, because that was, that was probably a good idea. Yeah, what could go wrong here? Everything, everything could go wrong here. So, yes... Yes, this week is a Krako tale, and you uh, you sent me the name of it, and I'm excited. I do not know this one, but it sounds really cool. Yeah, this one's this one's interesting. I, I will go ahead and say that um, there was a lot of description about what happened, so it gets pretty graphic. A lot of the articles that I pulled from, I want to point out that one of them had the majority of the information. So, like, any time I needed, like. One article didn't mention something or there was a gap in the timeline. I was able to go back to this article. Thankfully, they had done a lot of interviews and they had done like a thorough investigation into this. So like oh. a lot of what I got actually was from some of the interviews. The information that I got was from some of the interviews that they did. So that was good. So I know it came right from the source. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So today we're, we're discussing the butcher of Tompkins Square Park in New York. In New York City or New York State? New York City. Wow. 
Monica Birrell had recently moved from St. Gallen, Switzerland in 1988 to study on scholarship at the Martha Graham School of Contemporary Dance. She loved to dance. That was that was her thing she wanted to make a career out of. Her friends had always said that she was attracted to the outrageous and her as and that her dance style as well as her taste in men was edgy. I can tell you that that's already not looking good. Yeah, but that's where it gets fun, though, because since she was attracted to the outrageous and edgy men, when she got to New York, she was she became fascinated by the city's underbelly, like the, the little seedy hole in the wall bars that you probably don't want to go to after dark. She liked those places. That's and she even picked up many sketchy dates from these areas. Oh, so you can already see where this is going. Yeah, um... I'm a wuss. I don't take those kinds of chances. So that's that right there is scary to me. Apparently 1988 was just a lawless wasteland. I mean, yeah, kind of. I was only a kid at the time, but yeah. I wasn't even born then, but yeah. Just rub it in. Call me old while you're at it. So we have someone who has an edgy taste in men. He picks up sketchy dates from even sketchier places. And to make ends meet while they're living here in New York, she began working at a topless dive bar called Billy's Topless in the Chelsea area of Manhattan before moving on to even sketchier stuff and getting into drugs on the Lower East Side in an area that is often called Alphabet City because of the single letter avenues. Yeah. Um, so working as a dancer... I, I, I don't care. Like, people, you, you need money. If you can do it, go for it. It's the drugs. That's the, that's the sad part. Yeah, it started to decline a bit. Yeah, like, don't get, don't do drugs, kids. Don't do drugs. Yeah, no, no. We, we see what happens in these stories of what happens when you get into the drugs. Usually it's never good. Yeah, usually you either end up being a victim or uh, a bad guy. No one wants to be either. Correct. But what I thought was funny about uh, Alphabet City was because apparently many locals refer to this area as Alphabet Soup because it's always boiling over. See, I've heard of Alphabet City. I never heard it called Alphabet Soup. Huh. Apparently a lot of the locals referred to it as Alphabet Soup because there's something always going on in Alphabet City, so it's always boiling over. Makes sense. But we're going to we're going to pause on Monica's story for a moment. And just a few years, we're going to go back a little bit. So just a few years before Monica had arrived in New York, Daniel Rakowitz was making a name for himself there. Rakowitz was born on December 24th, 1960 in a Missouri military installation known as Fort Leonard Wood. Uh, his father was a criminal investigator for the U.S. Army and being in the military and all, they, they traveled around a lot. And unfortunately, on I couldn't figure out what exactly happened but or what caused it. But on one of their trips to France while in the motel um, when Daniel was only three, his mother, Velma Rakowitz, uh, suffered a heart attack and died in front of him. Oh, that's so sad. And it gets a little, a little worse. Uh, just three months after that, his father, Anthony Rakowitz, got remarried to his late wife's sister. That's awkward. Yeah, just a, just a little bit. But yeah, just imagining some poor little three-year-old watching his mother die. That's horrible. 
Yeah, because I'm assuming his 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 dad was at work, so I'm assuming it was just them. But that was the most information I could find on that. Well, even even if other people were there, it doesn't. But still, I mean, he was three. Yeah, still. Like when I was three, I still had trouble saying French fries. I mean, I still have trouble saying French fries, but you know. Uh, I called them fry fries. That's understandable. Now I'm gonna be talking to you like tomorrow, and you'll be like, "Yeah, Bobo and I went out, and I got some fry fries." <laughs> I'm gonna do that just because you said that. <laughs> Are you gonna write a post-it note so you remember? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'll just have post-it notes for like, what do I call this? Word, it's just me writing my own dictionary. <laughs> Maybe we need that, the Squonk and the Hag edition of, like, Krakow's Dictionary. <sighs> I don't think anybody needs or wants that. Fair enough. But after after all of this, um, the family eventually settled in Rockport, Texas, where Anthony served as a deputy sheriff after he got out of the military. And um, Daniel had a bit of a rocky relationship with his father, um... He suffered from various mental illnesses, uh, Daniel did, which led to him spending time seeing many mental health specialists when he was a young teen. And he even went through shock therapy at 14, and he was prescribed a lot of antipsychotic medication. Oh, wow. And it was around this time when he was going into these institutions and stuff that he started using drugs. Oh, boy. And his dad being a deputy sheriff... Uh, ended up kicking him out when he discovered marijuana in his room. His dad took him down to the local police station and had him booked for possession. Now, was that the only drug that he was using? Yeah, that that was what he started with. That's not as bad as, like, a lot of times when you... Because I do know that... Um, medical marijuana, like these days, can be used for various mental illnesses. Yeah. However, when you get into like crack and meth and heroin, then it gets a little bit concerning. Yeah. Although I do know, I keep seeing stuff about uh, they are doing tests of microdosing LSD for, um, I think it's Alzheimer's hmm. and depression. But but yeah, most drugs when you, when you get <laughs> Most of them have very, very bad effects if you have mental illness or you mix them with antipsychotics and stuff like that. So that's that's not good. Yeah, but from from what I could gather in this was that it was just he it it didn't say exactly how much he found, but it's not like he was sell he had like pounds of it. It was probably just his small personal stash of it that he found in his room. Okay, but. Dad took him to the police station and had him booked. So this is where it starts to get a little creepy. Uh-oh. When he turned 19, Rakowitz enlisted in the Army and became an expert rifleman, followed by 14 weeks in Army law enforcement school. He basically wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps. Okay. And once he was discharged, he tried to become a deputy. He applied at the same station that his dad worked out. Uh, his dad worked at, but he was turned down, and he didn't get to go work there. That's sad. Um... Yeah, that that didn't quite work out. Um, in an interview that someone had with him, he stated that on April 3rd, 1983, I made a prayer that I would have a dream to learn future events. Six days later, I did indeed have the dream, and it told me I would come into the total possession of a 14-year-old girl who two weeks later became my wife. And before we got married, I said, 
According to the dream, you're going to leave me, and I will go to New York and find a blonde-haired woman and get married. Someday I come back, and according to the dream, you come back to me, but I have but have another man's child. Well, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah. Because apparently at the time in Texas, like, I didn't look up the specific law, but apparently the whole marrying someone at a young age, as young as 14, that was allowed at one point. Well, I remember uh, there was a rock star in the, was it Jerry Lee Lewis or something like that? Married a 13-year-old. And like, it was a big, big thing. There's even like a, a Hollywood movie about it. Fair enough. Things were, were different back back then. And now, I think that was in the 60s or 70s, but still. Yeah. Can you imagine being 14 and mar getting married? I, I wouldn't think that they would be focused on getting married at that age, but I mean... No, when I was 15, I thought I was going to marry one of the Backstreet Boys someday. I mean, that day could still come. Who knows? I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to anymore. Fair enough. Yeah. No? There's a lot of reasons no. Chris and I, and then you find out it's just Chris and I got together and we dressed him up like one of the Backstreet Boys. Oh, God, please don't. So that's please do. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, no, my point was at 15, I was young and an idiot. Mm -hmm. I mean, weren't we all? Well, that, that, that's the point, though. Like, when you're that young, yeah. you, you're an idiot and you do a lot of stupid things and you have no concept of reality like you think yeah and like in some ways that's good because like you can dream big and you know maybe pursue your dreams but you also have like the other side where it's like oh my god i can totally do this and it's like please don't please don't <laughs> just just don't please so it's like it's just, just don't. it's a double-edged sword and it's like you change yeah like i know everybody changes over the years everybody changes over time but you change so much from like 13 to 18 than you do in any other five-year span of your life i feel yeah like as a person like before 13 you're a kid you're very much a kid and then at 13 to 18 you're in this crazy space and then from 18 you're finally like oh i guess i gotta be an adult now but like i don't know like that those teenage years you just that's when everybody has the phases yeah where they're trying to figure out what they like and who they are kind of thing yeah exactly exactly you're still figuring things out i had a country music phase that was interesting fair enough yeah and uh the Backstreet Boys phase, and uh, I had the phase where I really, really, really wanted to be emo with like the the big hair that like went down over your face and stuff like that. But oh, I yes, the whole can of hairspray. But I I was too much of a weenie, so I never did it. But deep inside, I really wanted to. I went with a mohawk. That was the route I took. Yeah, we'll we'll. I'm just going to I just wanted to put that one that that bit of information there. We're going to come back to that toward the end. Great. But that that fit right there. So well, we'll, we'll come back to that. So at some point after he got out of the army and all of this happened, uh, allegedly he moved to New York sometime in 1985 after he was kicked out and sort of left home and went off on his own. He kind of drifted up to New York. Um. 
And for the next few years, he was, as I said, a bit of a drifter. He worked part-time as a dishwasher in some of the local restaurants. I don't think he ever worked at one specific restaurant. It was kind of like, I think he just bounced from place to place washing dishes. And uh, eventually he settled in with the homeless population that had set up camp in Tompkins Square Park. And this is the best part here where he sold marijuana as a side job with his pet rooster that just so happened to be named Rooster. <laughs> oh, man. I can see you getting a pet rooster and naming it Rooster. Yeah, apparently, like, it was not out of the ordinary. It's like, oh, if you if you want marijuana, look for the guy with the rooster on his shoulder. I mean, it's it's definitely a calling card. <laughs> yeah, the only the only bad thing is, though, he it was known that he did like to hurt animals. Oh. I don't like it. So he was not kind to his pets. To make things even more interesting, Rakowitz was also interested in Satanism, and he became involved with a local organization called the Church of Realized Fantasy. That's a... Sounds like the name of, like, some weird bookstore. Like, not it... That doesn't sound... It doesn't sound like an actual church. It sounds like... It's a bookstore that sells fantasy books. I really want to know, because, like, we... So many times we talk about these organizations, and I'm like, who names these things? No, I don't know where the names come from for some of these places, because while I have all of this information, whenever I try looking up other, like, information on these things, there's not a whole lot. Like, there's a little bit, but there's not a lot. Yeah. Also, what I'm going to tell you at the end makes me not want to dig into this further. Okay, so the Church of Realized Fantasy. <laughs> Let's continue. But after some time at, with this church, Daniel wasn't very happy. He didn't want to just be a follower. So he founded his own religion, the Church of the 966. Uh, I have researched cults and watched stuff about cults before. And mm -hmm. anytime you're just so restless and you want to become the leader of the church, it's a bad sign. Yeah. And I can, once you hear more of the story, you, I think you might agree. But um, a lot of what I read and then looking at what, how he was and everything, basically everyone that knew him was just like yeah if he had a bit more charisma he would have been the charles manson of the east coast oh man because he was that like approachable like he was weird but like he knew everyone and everyone knew him so like if he was just a little more approachable and charismatic then he could have had a pretty big following that's not scary at all so what what i could find in in the naming of these organizations is Rakowitz's religion, the Church of the 966. He said in an interview that I was born on Christmas Eve, 12, 24, 60, which equals 96, and I have 18 letters to my name. I was born in the 21st hour, which is 902, which they say signifies the coming of the Lord Jesus, according to what the Bible says. He also stated that he became aware of his divinity in 1966 when he was five. He said three lords looking like Jesus floated out of the wall, one at a time, one wearing a purple, one wearing yellow, and one wearing a blue robe. And his religion focused on animal sacrifice. So, not only did he want to be the church leader, he felt that he was the second coming of Christ. There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> yep. Although, I will say, 
I was also born in the 21st hour. However, I don't think that signifies anything. Oh, he has he has more, quote, evidence of this, too. But I couldn't figure out I couldn't figure out what the whole uh, 21st hour signifying the second coming or what the 18 letters to his name. I tried looking into that to see what he was talking about, because he said, according to the Bible, that signifies the second coming. I couldn't find anything about that. But so I'm not sure where he got that from. I'm also curious of how this equals 966. So you have um, 122460 equals 96. Yeah, you got your 96, and then he stated that he became aware of his divinity in 1966. Take away the one, 966. Oh! I'm guessing he's just going off of the year that he had this vision. So... If he just took the one off of 1966, what's why did he have to ramble about all the other stuff? I'm guessing that's just more proof that there's like, oh, there's a lot of coincidences. The numbers for my birthday equal 96. I had this vision in 19, nine, uh, 1966. There's a lot of nines and sixes here. He just kind of like latched on to that pattern, it seems. With his religion focusing on animal sacrifice, he often left chicken blood on walls as sort of his trademark for his religion. Because that's who you want as a role model. Oh, and it gets even better. He was also fascinated with Hitler and his German edition of Mein Kampf. Like, I... <sighs> yeah, yeah, no, no. But listen to this, though. The reason he was fascinated with this version of the book was because... He believed that it had evidence of the supernatural on page 696. And this evidence was not in what was written in the book, but it was a diagram that was on a folded piece of paper in between the pages. It was a blotch of ink in the center with a nine to the left and a six on the right of it. And he believed that the diagram was evidence that he was the second coming of Christ. He later explained that when he looked at it, he looked at this diagram, he saw a cow's head with two horns coming out toward him through the ink. And when he rotated that diagram 90 degrees, he said it turned into my entire image, my face, my hair, my beard, my shirt, my coat, and my pants. He also claims that the Daniel in the diagram had dog paws instead of feet. And off to one side, he claims to have seen a blonde-haired woman looking at me coming towards her. Um... How did he get this diagram? Like, if it was in Hitler's copy of the book, how did he get this magic diagram? I have no idea. I don't. I did, couldn't figure out where he got the book from. I don't. It was just a German edition of it. It wasn't a translated version, so I, he could have just gotten it from a bookstore. And like, it could have. I don't know if he made that diagram because everything I looked up for that diagram because I wanted to see if there was an image of it anywhere to see what it looked like, but I couldn't even find an image of the diagram. So that's one of those weird things that's like, supposedly that this is... Uh, it, people can confirm he did have this book and, and fascination with it and everything, but right. as far as physical evidence of the diagram, I couldn't find any. I, I was curious in seeing it too because it's like one of those ink blot tests, it seems like. Yeah. If he's seeing things in it. Yeah. Well, this just makes me think, because uh, you mentioned a lot of mental illness and antipsychotic drugs. So I'm wondering how much of this was, like, 
maybe there was a piece of paper in the copy of the book that he got, but maybe it wasn't a mm -hmm. supernatural diagram. It was just a piece of paper. And it could have been that it could have been the nine and the six wasn't actually a nine and a six. It's just the way the ink was on there. It looked like a nine and a six. Yeah, like it makes me wonder if the reason the diagram doesn't exist is because it doesn't look the way he thought it looked. Or it could have all been in his head because there's another thing that we'll talk about later on that one of actually one of the detectives talked about that something in the story could have been in his head. So, um, but I will go ahead and say, even though I'll, we talk, I mentioned it at the end, but he was eventually diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. But, um... I actually, uh... Oh, sorry. Hey, go, 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 this go is ahead. a tangent, but I, uh, I worked with... I worked with a girl who was schizophrenic a uh, long time ago. It was when I was... When I, um... Well, she interned uh, when I worked at an art center. This was, like, right out of college. And she... She was a little bit spacey as an employee, but she was an amazing painter. She was just a really talented artist. I felt I felt bad. She she had like a lot of struggles because of the disease, but like yeah. I actually she cuz she didn't understand how talented she was. I actually have one of her paintings hanging downstairs. She sold it to me for $10. Fair enough. And it's like a it's like a 24 by 30 canvas. Like it's not a little painting. It's a big ass painting yeah, and no, it's, it's, a, it's a big canvas. Yeah, it's this woman and she's holding an apple and then her hair turns into the masts of a ship and it says loose lips sink ships. It's gorgeous. We're going to need to see this painting at some point. That sounds I'll have cool. To, uh, yeah, I'll have to take a picture of it and send it to you because it's a gorgeous painting. And like I like said, it. she was just really, really talented. But again, um, she did have a lot of struggles. In her life. Yeah. So the next part of this story, um, from the information I could find on the next two people that we'll be talking about here, uh, their names were changed for to keep their privacy and everything. So they're going to be called Sylvia and Sean. So during one of uh, Daniel's drug deals, he met a 27 year old nursing assistant named Sylvia. And Rakowitz would eventually move in with Sylvia and her boyfriend, Sean. The couple was originally from Morris Plains, New Jersey, and had been living in a small two-bedroom apartment for a couple months when Rakowitz moved in with his rooster and three cats. Different. Mm-hmm. On the agreement that he would pay half of the rent, which was $500 a month. That's the total rent. He had to pay half of that. That's really cheap. Well, it was back in the 80s. I'm like, yeah, and it was a really cramped, yeah, two bedroom apartment. So, but like, um, still, yeah, you can get like a micro studio apartment in Manhattan that's like at least double or triple that five hundred dollars. Yeah, I heard, I heard the pricing for stuff like that's gone up a lot. Well, and in Manhattan, Manhattan's now so. It's been a while 
I went out to San Francisco maybe five, six years ago at this point. No, longer than that. But they were saying that San Francisco surpassed New York as the most expensive city in America due to, like, Silicon Valley and stuff like that. And, yeah, yeah, so, like, this would actually probably be, like, eight years ago, now that I think about it. And they... they said because we did one of those double decker tour bus things, and oh, yeah. it was actually a re- it was a really good one. Like the tour guy was amazing, but they were saying that for a room in the Tenderloin, which is I guess the the lowest lowest level district of San Francisco, um, it was for nine hundred dollars. You would get a studio apartment that basically it was a bed and a sink and you would have to share a bathroom and I think it was a communal kitchen as well so literally a bed was $900 a month or why my mortgage isn't that much now I'm not we don't have that big crazy of a house we have like a little row home but it's three bedrooms uh, two bathrooms, kitchen, you know, living room, basement. Yeah, it's a decent sized house. Yeah, yeah less than that. Bro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. It, it's it's crazy. Um, so like you go to like those major major cities, it's expensive, which is why I live in a little town. <laughs> yeah, I try to avoid the expensive prices. Yes. But yeah, so $500 for a two-bedroom apartment? That's cheap in Manhattan. Yeah. <clears throat> Though I think uh, the price of rent in that area has gone up because I think I saw somewhere where all of that stuff has been changed and the park's been cleaned up and it's all high-rises and stuff now, so... Mm, yeah, so now it's going to be expensive. Oh, yeah. So the the fun thing about... Rakowitz moving in with Sylvia and Sean was uh, this was the first time that Sylvia was really getting to know Rakowitz is when he's moving in. Why would you have a stranger move in with you? Especially the guy you buy your drugs from. Yeah, like you don't you don't you don't know this guy. Like she 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 knew him because like she had met up with him frequently and like talked to him, but she didn't like know him know him. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you if if I'm gonna live with someone, I better know you real well. Yeah. Like my uh before I Chris and I got together, uh my roommate was someone that I I'm still friends with her, but we were friends for years before we became roommates. Mm-hmm. Uh, like <laughs> years now, obviously, um, when I moved in with my parents, they didn't know me because I was a newborn. But you know, fair enough. I, I think we, I think we can let that one slide. Yeah, but yeah, no, like mm-hmm. someone you barely know—that's scary. And then after he moved in, Sylvia described his behavior as erratic and odd. But despite that, he was known as a—he was known to be very compassionate, and he even made large meals to feed the homeless in Tompkins Square frequently. Oh, that's nice. He would go down to the key food on 4th and B, and he would—he he didn't buy anything. He, he waited by the door and asked shoppers for donations, and 
Without fail, they would get him whatever he wanted, and he would return to back to the apartment with like 30 to 40 pounds of food, and he would cook every bit of it for the people in the park. This kind of comes back to the cult leader aspect yeah. of things, but I mean, at least he was... At least it was to to help those in need. Yeah, that's another way that, like, he got to know everyone in the park and how everyone knew him. He was the soup guy. The soup guy. Mmm, soup. It's too hot for soup, but I do love soup. Yeah, good soup. Yeah, I have to turn the fans off to record. So my office, I think I've told you this before, it's, it's an addition onto the house. It was built before we bought the house, but it wasn't part of the original house. <laughs> and it's not insulated very well. Oh, no. So the rest... Yeah, so the rest of the house is super comfy. <laughs> like, the you know, we have the AC on and everything. Mm-hmm. Everything feels great. But this room, I actually have a box fan that blows the air conditioning in from the bedroom to keep this room cool. Fair. And uh, I have to turn that off. Otherwise, that's all you'll hear on the microphone. <laughs> it's going to sound like you're recording on an airplane. Not long after the soup man had moved in with them, Sylvia and Sean began having issues with their three-year relationship. They eventually broke up and Sean left, and over time, Sylvia got tired of the city and also left, leaving Rakowitz alone with the apartment and the rent, which had now gone up to six oh five a month. That's still so cheap. <laughs> yeah, but he's now got to pay the full rent by himself. Yeah, yeah. So he was afraid of being kicked out because he wasn't, like, the best person. So he was like, well, the land, the apartment owner is, is not going to see me as an ideal tenant. They're probably going to end up throwing me out. I'm going to have to find somewhere else to live. So he wanted to do all he could to hold on to that apartment. Yeah, yeah. So he now had to look for a new roommate to split the rent. When Sylvia had left, Rakowitz insisted on having the lease put under a friend's name instead of his own his own for unknown reasons. Daniel didn't want his name on anything. Uh, possibly because he uh, was... <laughs> well, he believed he was the second coming of Christ. A few weeks later, Rakowitz met a 26-year-old named Monica Beerl, who had been moving from place to place and was now looking for a new place to stay. With an edgy man. And just so happens that this man is pretty edgy. Uh, rooster-toting drug dealer? I think that would classify as edgy. Yeah. A little edgy. Well, he took her back to his apartment where he made the offer to split the rent with her. And after she accepted, they celebrated with a couple of joints from his personal stash. So Sylvia and Daniel remain friends and in contact through all of this. I think Sylvia just moved to a different area of New York, but she was still close by. They they still remained in contact. And uh, since Daniel's name wasn't going to be on the lease, Sylvia had met Monica the night before that the lease had changed over. And Sylvia recalls that Rakowitz was slow to open the door, but when he did, he was in the middle of zipping up his pants. Sylvia stated he'd never had women up there. I'd never seen him with a woman, so I'm saying to myself, all right, Daniel, I know you're just trying to goof on me and make me think you went with this woman. So I went in there, and he introduced me to her, and he says, yeah, she's going to move in. She's going to take over the lease. And in the beginning of August, Monica was bringing her belongings into the apartment, and Sylvia recalls that Daniel had cleaned the place up, and it was just immaculate before Monica moved in. Oh, 
So apparently he had cleaned it up just for her to make it nice since she was moving in. So somebody has a crush. It seems so. So Sylvia asked Monica the next day. Sylvia says, I asked her the next day because I thought Daniel was playing a joke. I said, Daniel told me that he went with you. And she goes, he did. Point blank in an answer to me. Oh. This is the part where it, it, stories conflict a little bit because some people say that Rakowitz was under the impression that Monica was his girlfriend when really she just needed a place to stay. She wasn't interested in anything else. But other people say that Rakowitz was the one using Monica to pay his back rent so he wouldn't get kicked out. Or maybe they were both using each other and they thought the other one wasn't. Maybe. But either way, Monica made things very clear almost immediately. She began bringing home other men. Oh. And this is another section where it gets a little, little more uncomfy. One of the men that she brought home was a Rastafarian who Monica had invited to stay the night. And Rakowitz had unintentionally surprised the two. And he later spoke to Sylvia about it. But it wasn't the fact that it was another man. He, when he spoke to Sylvia about it, he said, Sylvia, she has a black man in there. Sylvia stated that he looked hurt and mad because this is one of the people that he hated. For some reason, Rakowitz did not like gay people or black people. I, I absolutely hate that. But I'm not surprised, yeah. considering that he looked up to Hitler. I mean, man's got a fascination with Hitler and a German edition of Mein Kampf in his bag. I mean... Yeah, like, I I truly detest it, and I do not think it's good at all. But I'm not surprised. Yeah. Sylvia, she knew this, and she just replied with, Daniel, what do you want me to do about it? Because it was like... Why are you calling me? Like, I don't I don't have the lease anymore. I'm not in this. This is your problem. It'd be like me calling you up and being like, Cracko, there's someone in my house I don't like. <laughs> exactly. Like, what, what do you want me to do about it? Well, Monica's friends were, uh, to say the least, startled by Rakowitz's erratic behavior and suggested that she throw him out. And in mid-August, just a, about a week after she moved in, she told Rakowitz that he had two weeks to get his stuff and get out and find somewhere else to stay. This was this was not what he wanted. Well, yeah, considering that he had her move in so that he wouldn't have to leave the apartment. That and uh, he he often I believe I saw that he often told people that that was his uh, his girlfriend. Yeah, he was under the impression that that was his girlfriend and she wasn't. I feel like. I know it's cheesy and it probably feels awkward, but if you think you're in a relationship with someone, you should probably check. Yeah. Like, hey, are you my girlfriend? What's, what's going on here? Is So, again, with being threatened with being, th or being told that he's got two weeks to move out, what does he do? He doesn't talk to Monica. He goes back to Sylvia. Because why not? He, he, Sylvia uh, said that he talked to her and said, please, Sylvia, don't let her throw me out. I have nowhere to go. To which she replied, Daniel, I told you this was going to happen. And at this point, like I said, he was doing everything he could to stay in that apartment. But Monica was firm in her decision that he needed to go. And Sylvia recalls that at this point, Rakowitz was very upset by this. And all day he would go from saying, I'm going to kill her to, no, I love her. I'm not going to kill her. In a matter of minutes. He just flipped between those two sentences. I feel like there are 
other things in between those two things. Yeah, not according to him. It was like, if I'm going to stay in the apartment, I've got to kill her. But no, wait, I love her. I can't kill her. And this went on for several days. And those were his two options. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Um... I will say killing people is probably not the good option. Considering we're talking about it on this podcast and what the name of the story is, I have a bad feeling. But I'm pretty sure if you're ever like, you know, I should kill someone or not kill someone, the answer should be the not killing someone. Correct. So since Rakowitz was known for his wild behavior, no one took him seriously when he said he was going to kill her. They thought that he was just rambling like he always does. Um, around August 12th, Sylvia told Monica that Rakowitz had threatened to kill her. Now, I don't know where everyone was in the room, but apparently all of them were together whenever Sylvia told Monica this. And upon hearing that Daniel had threatened to kill her, Monica just chuckled and walked up to Daniel in front of Sylvia and told him, I'll kill you first. Oh, okay. Well, that took a turn. Yeah. That, uh, there is a term, there is a thing, there's a, there's a, there's a technique called de-escalation. And that is not how you do it. That is the opposite of de-escalation. No. So, after this, Thursday evening on August 17th, Rakowitz and Sylvia were sharing a joint as they walked to the PATH train, when he told her that he couldn't deal with Monica anymore and that he intended to kill her the following day. And he even asked Sylvia to come back and help him dispose of the body. Oh my, what? Wonderful. So at being asked to help dispose of a body, Sylvia recalls telling him, Daniel, what are you crazy? I'm not going to help you with anything. Again, this was chalked up to just him being crazy and not being serious. So Sylvia didn't return on Friday and it just disregarded what he had said. And but on Saturday night, apparently she was walking down the street and she could see the apartment from outside and she could see that there were no lights on and she knew that something was not right. Maybe he did the thing he said he was going to do. Well, she made her way up to the apartment and she could hear the TV loudly playing inside as she went up the stairs. And when she went inside, she noticed that Daniel's TV was in the kitchen and everything was dimly lit. She went to her old room to check on her stuff because she was leaving it there until she was able to come back for it. She knocked on Monica's door and there was no response. She went to the kitchen where she noticed a pot on the stove. Inside the pot was the burnt head of Monica Beryl. <laughs> yeah, that was about the reaction she had. But it gets worse. Oh, God. She went to the bathroom. And she stated in the following interview, I walked to the very tip of the bathroom. I didn't go in. And I saw in the bathtub what was like a rib cage with everything off. Just the bones, just the ribs. And it was full of blood. And there were other pieces. So I just left. I couldn't even lock the door. I was shaking so bad. But I locked the door because I thought, Jesus, if anyone sees this... And I went to a phone booth on Avenue A and I called up Daniel's beeper number and I said, Daniel, you did it. And he said, you saw it. You saw it, Sylvia? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I'm sorry you had to see it, but I had to do it. Come up to the apartment and smoke a joint with me. And I said, Daniel, meet me in Tompkins Square. I'm not going to that apartment. 
So he met me in the park and he began apologizing. He said he was saying, Sylvia, I'm sorry. I had to do it. I had to do it. And then he started describing the process of what he did. Yeah. Would you believe me if I told you it gets worse? Did he eat her? I'm going to continue. Either it's a spree or he's a cannibal. Those are my theories. Well, we'll find out. He claims that he didn't act alone and that he had a friend from a satanic church in Brooklyn help him. He claims that Monica said, you have to leave by tomorrow. And if you don't get out, my friend with a pit bull is going to come and get you out. Before going to her room and shutting the door. And after this, his friend stated, what, you haven't killed her yet? Upon hearing this, Monica left her room and started arguing with Daniel's friend. And during the argument, Rakowitz claims he came up behind her as she was beginning to turn around and go back to her room and wrapped an extension cord around her neck. He also stated that as he was strangling her, she scratched him. And at that point, he rolled up his sleeve and showed Sylvia the long scratches down his arms. And apparently he said he had choked her to death and stomped on her head 10 times before stabbing her over 30 times. Oh, okay. Uh, That's overkill. Yeah. I can't compute this, so let's just keep going. Well, it gets even worse. Um, He says that as he was dismembering her, he used her torso as a carving board to hold various parts as he cut. That's messed up. And uh, he used a 13-inch carving knife to do this, as well as a solid steel pole to break any bones. And to make things not... To make things not compute even more, he cut the body into small pieces, which he then flushed down the toilet. I guess he learned nothing from Nielsen. Yeah. Because that's what Dennis Nielsen did. And then it clogged up the plumbing... And that's how he got caught. Ah, but will he get caught the same way? Probably not. Um, but, like, I, okay. <laughs> There's just a lot going on right now. Mm-hmm. Well, a few days after this, Rakowitz told Sylvia that everything had been cleaned and it's safe to visit. But when she got there, she saw that he had cleaned the skull and several bones that were still in the apartment. Ah, after that traumatic experience, she goes into the apartment. There's a head in a pot. There's a body in the bathtub. Why would you call the person you know committed the murder instead of the police? Yeah, that's that's something I'm surprised Sylvia didn't get anything from this, like anything legally done to her in terms of like jail or anything, because took a while before anything was said to the police. Yeah, like, I feel like... Yeah. If I walked in on that, the well, the first thing I would do is probably pass out, but um, one of the first things I would do is go to the police. Yeah. It seems like she was trying to cover for him, but I'm not sure. Just a guess, because... Why? I, I don't know. Because it's kind of odd that, like, it went on for a, a few days before the police were even notified that anything had happened. Oh, God. But to make matters worse, um, Rakowitz claimed that whenever he got angry at Monica, he would spit on the skull. Uh, okay. And he was even quoted as telling Sylvia, 
She looks more beautiful now than she ever did. Ah! Mm -hmm. Please tell me he doesn't do bad things to bodies. As far as I can tell, no. Okay. Well, I mean, murder and then the toilet thing, that's bad enough. That's something bad, but not what you're talking about. So eventually he would take the skull and the bones. He put them in a bucket of cat litter along with the knife that he used and uh, took it to a storage facility at 43rd Street and 11th Avenue before removing it to its final home, a baggage check facility at Port Authority. Dad, I've been in the Port Authority bus terminal. No. Yeah, so the baggage claim area once had bones in it. Well, I I can only imagine how many dead bodies have been in that place, but... Ah! Oh, I'm sure it's not the first, but anyway. Well, yeah, like, any kind of high traffic, something like that, mm. even, like, not... Completely eliminating criminal death. Yeah. Like, no crimes. You know, people, ha you know, ha natural causes, accidents, all that kind of stuff. So... Um, but just to think that somebody, like, checked a body into the baggage check at Port Authority is creepy. This is where we touch on your uh, your theories about what he did. Okay, let's go. Let's do this. I'm ready to be so horrific. Ugh. It's widely speculated that he uh, had eaten part of her body. Mm. And... A, another even wilder rumor that there there's a little bit of evidence behind this, but this is not a hundred percent fact. This is just a, one of the legends that sort of came from this. Uh -huh. Is that um, he had boiled her brain into stew and served it to the homeless community in the park? Oh man! Now there's, as I said, there's no evidence of this that he did this. He didn't say that that's what he did, but many of the people in the park can confirm that he did bring them soup sometime after the murder. Whether or not it had human meat or not is unknown, but during his trial, one witness did testify that one of the homeless had found a finger in the soup. Uh, I'm open to corrections on that one, but that's what I could find on that. Uh-huh. And, um... Rakowitz supposedly... It, it would seem like he wanted to get caught, because... He bragged about this murder to everyone he met. But uh, other than bragging about it to everyone, he even continued to live in the apartment for about a week after the incident. So, it's not really a parallel, but, like, I hate having to, like, clean up the kitchen after cooking. I can't imagine having to clean up an apartment after something like that and then having to live there. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to use the bathroom because, you know, what happened in the tub and the toilet. I mean, you also have to think you and I wouldn't do that. We wouldn't have murdered someone. <laughs> but still, I mean, even if I, like that apartment was still standing and it was available for rent today, I couldn't stay in that apartment if I knew what happened in the bathroom. I'd be like, I'll use the bathroom down the street. If I have to stay in this apartment, I'll use the bathroom down the street. <laughs> it's not even like downstairs. And I'll go cook somewhere else. I'm not using the stove or the oven. I'm not using the bathroom. I'm just here for the bed. 
I don't think I would even be able to do that. I don't think I would be able to stay there. That'd be as far as I could possibly go. Yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> well, he stayed there, like I said, for about a week, but then Sylvia convinced him that he needed to move, stating that he would soon be found out by the police. Uh, and after he left, Sylvia's ex, Sean, informed the building superintendent about what happened to Monica. And when the detectives arrived at the apartment to collect evidence and question Sean, there was graffiti on the door written in black magic marker that said, Is it soup yet? And welcome to Charlie Gaines Spawn Ranch East. I really don't like this. Or that. I don't like that. Like, oh, man. Oh, man. So we got we got a Hitler fan. We got a Manson fan. We got a Gein fan. All wrapped in one after he murdered someone and probably ate her and fed her to people. Yeah, supposedly when he was bragging about the murder, he did mention that, like, he tried a bit of it and liked it out of curiosity. He, he wanted to try it, and he did. And, and so he considered himself a cannibal after that. But you got... Yeah, Charlie Gein, you got the combination of Charles Manson and Ed Gein, and apparently he misspelled Spawn Ranch, supposed to be S-P-A-H-N, but he spelled it S-P-A-U-N, but that was the home of the Manson family. They also found the words broken hearted about you, the hearted, instead of the word, it was a drawing of a heart with the jagged line through it rather than the actual word, but that was uh, written on a pipe in, in the bathroom, it was etched into the pipe on, in the bathroom. And, uh, but since he cleaned the place, they found no evidence of a murder. That's a really good cleaning job. Well, that and it had been a little while, too, so things probably settled a bit. And Yeah, but it's really, like, people yeah. don't realize how hard it is to completely eliminate. Yeah, like, blood gets into everything. Like, mm -hmm. it will soak through carpeting. It soaks into wood. Like... To have that, and it will like depending on what kind of tub it was too. It could have stained the porcelain. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this was this was this before they did like the um, the the black light. But yeah, I don't know when they started using like the black light and the rhodium the the red stuff that lights up. Even if they didn't have that kind of stuff back then. Wouldn't they smell bleach? Because, like, Sean, whenever he went to the apartment, he even said, like, even though this place is clean, like, it still has that smell of death. It's it's not really a bad, like, rotten smell. It's just something doesn't smell right in this apartment. You kind of know what it is. But... Even though they didn't find evidence of a murder, they still contacted him through his beeper, asking him to come to the 9th Precinct to answer some questions. And he never admitted or denied killing Monica. Instead, he said, if I'd have killed her, I would have cut her up into lots of pieces and flushed her down the toilet. Well, I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah, no, he's not wrong. So, of course, they took that and they're like, okay, he just told us what he did, but we can't use that as a confession yet. So... The following Sunday, they went back to the apartment and ripped out the toilet to see if they could find anything, but there was nothing. They Apparently, they told Sean that the only good thing he had in that apartment was the plumbing. <laughs> That's not funny. I shouldn't laugh, but... No, but it kind of is. Not what happened, but 
that quote. Yeah, that quote. The only good thing in that apartment was the plumbing. But I mean, I guess if you're gonna have a, a shitty apartment, at least... At least the plumbing's good. But thankfully, even though they have nothing right now, Sean had told them about a storage bin that belonged to Rakowitz near the Port Authority bus station. Mm. So on Monday, uh, they went back to the apartment again where Sylvia was there. They told her that they had a written statement from Sean and a woman who lived across the hall, and they convinced Sylvia that they had enough evidence already. So she thought they had everything they needed. So she went ahead and told them everything she knew. And five hours later, they apprehended Daniel, and he confessed. Well, at least he confessed. I mean, that's something. It seems like he knew that what he did was wrong, because when they picked him up, he said, I need some help. It's kind of sad in a way. Yeah, because it seems like had he had a better relationship with his dad and like he wasn't didn't go through the shock therapy and all of that stuff. It seems like that kind of like agitated things a bit. Well, yeah, and if he had, like, proper mental health care and, And just you know, support in general. Yeah, support and, you know, doctors, a solid family, yeah. um, you know, good support system and all that stuff. It could have, he could have maybe been a deputy or yeah. um, found something else in life that would have been... Although I will say, I think it's a little odd that you mentioned how he was an expert marksman, but then he strangled yeah. and stabbed. I, w- I was expecting like a, a a gun violence type thing. I, I was too, but... Here we are. Here we are at the Port Authority bus terminal. I will never check a bag in there. <laughs> So when they took him there to check on the the locker that he had, uh, he pulled out a claim ticket for an army duffel bag, and inside this bag was the white plastic bucket with the skull, bones, and knife in it. Uh, but the weird thing is, he claims that a friend, he told Sylvia that he had a friend there helping him with the crime. But the friend, uh, they never located the friend that was supposedly there. Instead, they they came to the conclusion that this friend was just in his in his head. It was his imagination. I was going to say, uh, you mentioned that he did get diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. So I was wondering if it was just somebody yeah, in his and mind. Actually, some of the officers were questioned about the report of the other man at the scene of the crime. And an officer that knew the case well stated, I don't believe that for a second. Okay, I was going to say they didn't believe that it was in his head or they didn't believe that. So they believe that this was all him. Okay, okay, gotcha. We're going to get ready for some more funny quotes here. In February 1991, Rakowitz went to trial and the jury deliberated for nine days before declaring that he was not criminally responsible due to mental disease or defect. And after the verdict, Rakowitz stated to the jury, I hope someday I can smoke a joint with y'all. He even offered to smoke a joint with the judge. I, I, sure. We're going to bring the mood up with that, and then now we're going to bring it back down, because you remember the 14-year-old we talked about? Yeah. 
Uh, his ex-wife testified against him at his trial, stating that she was 14 when they got married and that Rakowitz was very controlling. And he even chained her to the fridge when he went to work and would come home and brag about some of the horrible things that he had supposedly done. What? Yeah. So not only do you marry a 14-year-old, but then you chain her to the fridge? I mean, he did say in, in that interview that he would come into the total possession of a 14-year-old, as he described it. So, I guess total possession involves chaining them to the fridge so they don't escape while you're gone. No. I don't think that's how that works, but, you know, apparently for him it did. I... So, he, they said he wasn't criminally responsible, so he didn't go to prison, but he was sent to Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Center on Ward's Island, where as of April 2020, he was still there. Despite several requests, he wanted to move to a lower security facility over the years. And as I said, they diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic. I feel like most of my commentary on this case is just mm -hmm. gibberish, because I... It's a, it's a lot to process. Processing, processing, processing. It's a lot to process. So, you know, I mentioned that, like, we were talking about some of the investigating and digging into the story, but now I said I didn't. It's something else that I came across made me not want to dig into it anymore. Oh, no. There's a bonus rabbit hole link that I will leave in the sources um, that any of the listeners who want some extra conspiracy theories can dig into that one. Supposedly there's a theory that Rakowitz did not do this alone that actually the killing of Monica was part of a satanic ritual at one of the churches and that several people were involved, but he took the fall for it. Okay, that's 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 better than I, what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to be like, it was the government. The CIA came in and they brainwashed him to kill her for them. <laughs> Me with the uh, all the strings <laughs> on the court board on the wall. It's Pepe Sylvia. <laughs> But it, it does get a little creepy because supposedly there was a journalist who was looking into it a little bit more. And as he was before he could finish investigating and writing up, he was going to write a book on it and everything. But before he could finish his research, he apparently died of a heroin overdose. Again, that's one of those rabbit holes that like I have the article here. I haven't fully gone over it because like we have the gist of the story here. This was just okay. bonus conspiracy theory time. Because he was, apparently he had a conversation with someone that uh, someone had asked him, so do you believe they had, he had accomplices, to which he said yes. And apparently he added slowly as he groped for words, and I'm not alone in that belief. And they asked, who else, uh, they said like, who else believes that there were others involved? And he said the district attorney's office. Oh, and uh, as they continued talking about it, they were like, someone, uh, the guy who's asking him these questions said, so they haven't found anyone or they don't have enough evidence or what? And he said, they found one once and they gave him a subpoena and he disappeared. Oh. Yeah. I wish that his notes were somewhere that someone could pick up where he left off. Yeah. But that's that really does go down a rabbit hole because the title of the article is The Strange Case of Max Cantor. That's the name of the journalist. Monica's Ghost. Because it even goes into into the whole thing that Monica's ghost is after people for revenge for her murder. It's a deep rabbit hole. It sounds it. Yeah, that's why I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with like what we know happened, and then I'll leave that in the bonus. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for the disturbing story. Mm -hmm. I I think I'm still unpacking 
from like the beginning of the episode. <laughs> yeah. I'll be I'm gonna be sitting here later tonight and I'll be like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So like whenever I first heard about this story and was kind of like skimming over some of the stuff, I didn't get all of the information about the bathtub and the toilet and all of that. I only knew about like the head in the pot and the potentially feeding them to feeding the body to the homeless and all of that. I heard that and I was like, I want to investigate this. This sounds interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you guys all for listening. Yeah. We should probably update our outro to include that. If you don't remember, we have a website and a Patreon and stuff. So... And we're in the process of working up rewards for the Patreon that are very interesting, to say the least. Oh, that idea I sent you. I was like, there are already rewards on there. But yeah, there's a one. Yeah, yeah. There's rewards on there. But you mentioned one that we haven't worked on yet, so. Yes, yes. Well, there's a whole bunch. Bobo has a whole list. Anyway. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Uh, We will talk to you next week. Goodbye. Okay,